0: think about whatever microorganisms are growing within that cell culture, there has to be a very specific environment. You can't make a mistake and mess up the temperature in that Petri dish, because whatever is supposed to grow up in there will not grow. We're like microorganisms in the Petri dish. We don't even know what's being
1: injected in there. We're just like, this is part of culture. I think perfectionism is often rooted in, you know, I'm I'm not good enough, right? I'm not, um, I need to constantly be creating more value to be accepted, to be accepted in society. And it's really that value that, um, that value that I add that makes me worthwhile. And that's not true, right? That's, um, that's like an unhealthy belief.
2: Folks are tired and folks are at a point where they're like, well, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we are so far from there.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Felicia. And I'm Rachel. And welcome to the SGO podcast,
3: the She Geeks Out podcast. This season is unlike any that we put out so far. What does the future of work look like when we're thinking about diversity and inclusivity and equity? And what does it look like for different groups of people? We got to interview so many incredible people. You'll also be hearing some little snippets and interjections from our facilitation team.
1: You'll get their perspectives on what DEI really looks like in the workplace from a practical, actionable standpoint. So let's go. This week, we're diving in the deep
3: end, talking about white supremacy culture. There is a real challenge in running teams and companies that put DEI at the forefront and hold on to those values, while at the same time existing within a larger society that upholds white supremacy culture characteristics. Let's start off with SGO facilitators Rachel Sadler and Fatima Denke
4: defining the concept and how it shows up for us. The term white supremacy culture comes from the work of Tema Okun, who identified the many ways we operate and how they are rooted in the support of white supremacy. So characteristics like perfectionism, defensiveness, a continuous sense of urgency, either or thinking, power hoarding fear of conflict and individualism are just a few things we see not only in the workplace, but in our greater society that are viewed as norms. So if you deviate from these norms, in particular at work, you can be viewed as incompetent, lazy, ignorant, or even aggressive. So this contemporary idea of hustle or grind culture is rooted in the characteristics of white supremacy culture. And it's designed to keep us toiling under this current iteration of capitalism. Because if you are constantly grinding, working long hours, then you can't prioritize rest. If you're only out for yourself, then you can't prioritize community. If the options are either this or that, then there's no room for difference or diversity of thought. If you can't assertively address an injustice, then you have to suffer its wrath. All of these things collaborate to keep people focused on and even identified by their relationship with work, leaving little if no time for anything or anyone else.
0: So folks are doing the work. They got their ERGs going. You know, they got the workshops happening. They're doing some action planning in this space of asking, are we really doing the work if we're still perpetuating capitalistic ideologies and or white supremacist ideas? Right. And it's an excellent question because I think we're all asking that question, right? Like, how do you do this work while also recognizing that capitalism and white supremacy culture is very much connected to just owning a business organization or institution? So I know I'm throwing a lot of words out there. So I want to take some time to sort of just break down some of these concepts to help us think about what are these concepts, and how are they impacting not just our workplace but our lives, right? So when we think about capitalism and our dear friend Webster Dictionary, right? And there's probably other ways people think about capitalism. But with that definition, right, capitalism is defined as an economic and political system in which a country's, you know, trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state, right? And so especially now today, we see that, in our face, right? When we're thinking about not just organizations that are doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, but recognizing how private sectors are really having a lot of control around politics, around certain things like healthcare, even more so than government, right? And the reason why that's important to understand is because organizations don't exist in a vacuum, right? So most of the folks who are leading institutions, who are leading work, they are also part of a system and a culture that is consistently telling them, here's what it means to show up. Here's what it means to run an organization. Here's what it means to support or not support your employees. So this is where white supremacy culture comes into play, right? Because oftentimes when I think about capitalism, I kind of just think about white supremacy culture because capitalism is very much connected to a lot of the foundation of this country especially when we think about the Industrial Revolution, right? Like what was happening there when we're talking about hustle culture and the need to produce and to work. And that is directly connected to productivity and the need to always be productive. And why is that white supremacy culture? Well, it's white supremacy culture because we ask ourselves, who designed the systems? right who designs the, who designed the workplaces who designed the organizations so bear with me a bit more because i am facilitator i am a facilitator by training so we're going to do some more terminology some more definition right what is white supremacy culture you're like fatima you're going around the circle like just define it for me we're going to take our time so let's start off with culture okay so culture when we think about the definition of culture we're saying it's the customs the arts Social institutions and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group, right? That's the standing definition that we're working with. So, from a biological standpoint, cell culture is what you create to maintain tissue cells, bacteria, and so forth. And you do that so that the conditions are suitable for whatever it is that needs to grow there. So, I want us to hold both of those definitions as I keep going because it'll all connect, I promise, right? Now let's talk about white supremacy. White supremacy is the belief that white people are the superior race and should therefore dominate or be seen as the dominant group, aka powerful group in any society. And the reason why that's important is because while race, we know, is a social construct, it still has impact. And we now know, and we've always known, that race was particularly created to justify why white people should be in power. I won't take too much time to give us a history lesson, but just go ahead and Google manifest destiny or Google, you know, white supremacy pseudoscience, order a copy of medical apartheid. There are so many things that are out there that sort of helps us understand where is our historical lens coming from. So if the folks who are a small majority, and this doesn't mean this is all white folks, right? But you have a small group of people who identify themselves as white, create the construct around whiteness and begin to put other folks in the white category. And then not only that, they say, how are we gonna make this happen? Well, capitalism is connected to the foundation of the United States and other Americas, right? When we think about slavery, in order for capitalism to have worked, in order for us to be successful, and this is in air quotes, I'm thinking monetary GDP, right? You know, the best nation, folks had to be enslaved and overworked and live in this culture in order for the ideology of whatever they thought capitalism should look like could work. We are no longer enslaved in that particular way, but some of the background of that still manifests in our day to day culture. What do I mean by that? What I'm saying is this culture of productivity, right? overworking, not valuing humans, only thinking about outcomes. If I'm saying capitalism is part of this and making money and productivity is part of this, we then have to ask ourselves, what is the culture that we have in the workplace? And that culture that we have in the workplace will mirror the culture that we've created as a society. When I talk to organizations or I'm talking to clients, folks are burnt out. The hustle culture is a real thing you're not seen as great if you're not perfect. We know perfectionism is a myth, but we push these narratives out there because we say in order for this system to continue the way it's been built, we have to agree subconsciously or consciously with what has been passed down to us. So I'm going to bring us back to our cell culture definition, because if you think about whatever microorganisms are growing within that cell culture, there has to be a very specific environment. You can't make a mistake and mess up the temperature in that Petri dish because whatever is supposed to grow up in there will not grow. We're like microorganisms in the Petri dish. We don't even know what's being injected in there. We're just like this is part of culture. Here's director of New York City Programs Institute for Urban
3: Parks at the Central Park Conservancy, Gray Elam, talking about the myths and illusions of a broken system.
5: I went through the Coro New York Leadership Center a couple of years ago. And while I was in that program, I had the uh, privilege of working with Andrew Grashow, And he talks about this concept and uh, significance of considering stakeholders' values, loyalties, and losses. And really basically asking, what are we asking people to give up? If we can understand what someone's being asked to give up, we can understand why an organization looks the way that it does. And he goes on to talk about this idea of the broken system, the myth of the broken system, that each system, each organization is crafted over time to reflect the values, the loyalties, and the reservation of those who built it. And that's like just completely unavoidable. It's fundamentally human. It's not a bad thing, but it it just means that we have an obligation to really question our assumptions and make space for the things that are unspoken.
0: We'll go back to Fatima. So when people hear white supremacy culture, they think, please don't use that phrase because I am not a white supremacist. I am not a KKK. You know, I don't have, you know, visceral reactions or thoughts about folks of other racial groups. You're missing the point. I understand that reaction. That's a very valid one. However, if you think about what I just shared and said, it's part of that, but it's not all of it. Right. For example, and this is a trigger warning. So brace yourself. If you need to pause, do that, but I need to be able to pull out another example to come back to this. So, for example, you don't have to be a rapist, right, to still support rape culture. And I say this because a lot of times folks are like, oh, well, it has to be one or the other. And it's like, no, the way culture works is we are all going to perpetuate it at various levels. We're not always going to do the same thing, but we're going to have a similar foundation. So folks who support rape culture might never feel like they're going to act upon it. However, they're participating in victim blaming, and that is part of supporting rape culture. So similarly, you don't have to be part of the KKK to still perpetuate white supremacy culture, right? Because white supremacy culture is about the way we behave, our actions, our thought process, how we show up. It's a holistic lens in terms of how we're looking at it, right, and so in order, for organizations to feel like they're moving away from capitalistic approaches, especially the harmful aspects. And some folks will argue the whole thing is harmful. There are other thought leaders that are like, some of it is good if we look at it this way. That's not what I'm here to do today. But I do think we need to be curious about the structures that we continue to support and perpetuate. Because if we say, this is the only way we can make money. This is the only way we can pay our employees and we're not working towards another way of working and being, we'll never reach where we can actually reach. And I don't know what that place looks like (laughs) or what that environment looks like, but it's possible. And it's only possible if we are working towards what we think is possible. But if we think, hey, capitalism has always been this, you know, this is the way folks are always competitive, we're not giving ourselves an opportunity to grow. And so, if we if we think about our lives and our workplaces in that realm, then we have to ask ourselves: Well, how far can our DEI work go? Because it will get far, but it won't get as far as it could get. White supremacy culture is not just perpetuated by white folks. I think it's really important to understand this because, because of the phrasing, it is very natural for folks who identify as white or have been identified as white to look at that phrase and feel you know, a personal attack. There might be guilt, there might be shame. Oftentimes when I do my workshops, there are folks who do identify as white who have honestly told me this phrase I don't love because some of what you're sharing or saying or some of the characteristics that you're mentioning, I feel like other folks around the world also perpetuate this. It's an interesting point because often what I say is white supremacy culture is not something that is naturally embedded inside of folks because they're white, right? There's no white supremacy culture gene, okay? (laughs) Just to be clear. However, the reason why white is in front of that is because we live in a society where we've made racial categories real. And not only have we made racial categories real, but we've made racism as a system to oppress people and then to create advantages for white people. So that is what is giving our perspective. However, you can go in a nation or a city or another state where it's predominantly people of color, and you can still see some of the white supremacy culture characteristics that I mentioned earlier still perpetuated in that community. Well, why is that? Well, we're all in the Petri dish, right? Like, just because you're white doesn't mean that you're the only one in there, because we are all absorbing whatever has been left in that culture that cell culture and so as we think about it that way we want to take a moment to say all of us regardless or in honor of identities to ask ourselves how am i perpetuating a form of culture that is negatively impacting my neighbor a family member a colleague whatever the case may be because it doesn't benefit anyone even if folks are getting advantages from like a social sense like white privilege for example you don't become your full self because you have to let go parts of yourself in order for you to hold up a system like that. So there's a lot that I'm giving, right? And you're like, okay, this is great, beautiful words, terminology, but what if someone isn't receptive to this? What if they're defensive? How do I approach this person or where should I start? I'm also trained in the public health space. Right. And I have my master's in public health. And one of the things we often focused on in my program was theory of change. How does change happen? When is the best time that change happens? And what are the things that you can do to make sure the change happens? We often talk about first window of opportunity, right? Usually a change doesn't happen unless if someone is like, Hey, we need to do something about this. That's number one. Also, change happens in increments, right? So if you're trying to create something new in your community, in your household or at work and folks are at like point A and you're trying to propose something at point Z, yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. And again, I'm not trying to say that the people who are at point A are wrong or you are wrong. I'm just saying as humans, that's not how how we roll. Usually something drastic has to happen for us to skip a few letters right we might not even get to z but we might have more understanding and so with those two things in mind right window of opportunity and increment of change when we're talking to another human we're not just talking to a person with flesh and bones we're talking to somebody who has lived for how many years who has been conditioned for how many years and has their own ideology their own beliefs and all of that so we can't expect that if we use the term white supremacy culture or racism that it is automatically going to land, even if we have beautiful definitions and examples. Oftentimes when I do workshops around race and racism, I get to gauge the crowd and see where they're at. And if a crowd is more on the introductory level or there might be some defensiveness, I will start off talking about culture literally the same way I did earlier, right? And then I'll also talk about dominant culture. Once you get people there and help them understand what is dominant culture, without naming any identities, you can hold on to that, right? Because then they're understanding like, yeah, I'm part of a culture. I understand that this is how things work, X, Y, and Z. Increments, increments. (laughs) You give folks doses of the information. And again, this is if you have time, energy, patience, all of that. Then the next step is to start talking about some of the terminology that could feel a little squishy or create some tension in the body. But you've built it up enough that the person can handle whatever new terminology that you're using, right? And defensiveness is a real thing. So honoring that, and I know that's a hard thing to do because we're trying to save lives, literally, and there's someone who might not agree with the thought process. But if we understand the cycle of socialization, can we really be that mad, (laughs) right? Because this person is operating in their best petri dish. So if I'm meeting them here today now, It's going to take time. And so defensiveness comes up because of fear. If someone is used to thinking a certain type of way and we give them another type of way, that's gonna feel like it's negating their whole entire belief system. And their belief system is not just white supremacy culture that they feel defensive about, their belief system is connected to other things and usually it's connected to their experiences. So a lot of times, for example, if I say, Oh, the myth of meritocracy, it's a myth to believe that in this society, you just need to work really hard to live the American dream. Well, we know that's not true because a lot of people work really, really hard and then are afforded the same opportunities as other folks who are privileged. But it takes time to break that down to folks because they get defensive because they are thinking, you're trying to say that my hard work didn't contribute to my success. And what you're not going to do is downplay me. That is a very human response. So similarly to that if we're talking about white supremacy culture it's like I don't think that I'm supreme. I don't think that I'm superior to other people. In fact my next door neighbor is a black man. My daughter-in-law is Asian. Right? Like and it becomes this small thing and then what ultimately is happening is oh my gosh, I'm a bad person. That is literally what is happening whether someone is voicing that out or not when it comes to defensiveness. And so to understand how defensiveness works Then you're able to pause and sort of be curious. Curiosity is the best way to get someone further along. Not telling them how to think or what to do, but being curious about them. Ask them about their lives, if you have time and space for that. Ask them about their understanding. Because once you have more information, you can then hold space to say, I see where you're coming from. And let me explain how this might even be connected to your experience or how it's not, right? But that is the work that is deep work and is hard work. And that's why companies hire companies like us to facilitate because in many ways it is facilitation work. It is coaching work. It is taking your time to help someone sort of grow and learn in wherever their ideologies might be.
3: I also talked to leadership and diversity trainer and consultant, Dr. Erica Powell, about how we can push this forward without harming marginalized folks further. You know, in this work, we talk a lot about intent and impact. And I think that comes up as well. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are around doing DEI work and who is the work for, because I find that's a, a sort of ongoing tension is we want to educate and push people, especially those who have more dominant identities, but then we don't want to harm people who are coming in from that, that place of silence or that place of keeping themselves safe.
2: Well, I think that's the next level. When people say, people, clients say to me, we've done our ABCDs, <laughs> where do we go next in all of this? The next layering is understanding, hey, we are in a, I like to call it a somatic (laughs) cha-cha-cha. What I mean by that is there are invisible rules that say when I get on a Zoom with you, this is how I'm supposed to behave. And I think the next level of DEI training will push people to see what is the actual cha-cha-cha they are in. Maybe they're not in a cha-cha-cha. Maybe they're in bachata. Maybe they're in a foxtrot. Maybe they're in a merengue. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe they're on a totally different beat altogether. So if we can get people to see, this is the invisible structure that's holding us together. At the next level, I think DEI training could do really well by supporting folks with marginalized identities pushing past that learned silence and that learned. There's a wonderful researcher by the name, because y'all y'all know I can geek out on who's in the field. If you haven't checked out Ken Hardy's work, he says. In these experiences, there are tasks that marge, folks with marginalized identities have to do, and there are tasks that folks with dominant identities have to do. So if in a DEI training at the next level, because we know we've laid the foundation, the first layer of the cake is here. The second layer becomes, how do we empower folks with marginalized identities to move through that learned silence that's protective in nature and listen to the second part and concurrently and this is why like next gen DEI practitioners buckle up buttercups because this is where it really gets real this is where like you need that lay moon level skill set and you need a broader skill set but beyond just the knowledge and how do we equip those folks with dominant identities, with the skills to start to move past the defensiveness that they have? I know Robin D'Angelo talks about white fragility and the next level is like, how do I start to recognize I'm getting fragile and now because of my fragility, I'm going to deny the marginalized person's experience. I'm going to tell them, oh, you're being oversensitive or it's not really like that. So I think that next level is getting both groups to dance in a new way.
3: We also talked to Belma McCaffrey, CEO and founder of Work Bigger, about her lived experiences with perfectionism and white supremacy culture. I think, you know, a lot of what we talk about, which is, you know, white supremacy characteristics, right? Like the idea of perfection is something that perfection is not attainable. And I think collectively we see that as, you know, a goal that is achievable for us, especially in the U.S. with our westernized lens. And, you know, I'm sure that must come up in some way, whether it's on your community side where, you know, you work with these high achievers that must come up for them. Right. And then yeah. does it come up with the companies? I'm, I'm just, I'd love to like unpack that a
1: little bit further. Yeah. I mean, it's a constant. I feel like perfectionism is something that I feel like I constantly tackle, but it constantly shows up. And I think it comes from, if we, if you want to go really deep, I think perfectionism is often rooted in I'm not good enough. I need to constantly be creating more value to be accepted, to be accepted in society. And it's really that value, that value that I add that makes me worthwhile. And that's not true, right? That's like an unhealthy belief, but that's something that I've worked through personally. And I see it, I see it in a lot of our members and I see it in a lot of our clients. You mentioned that, that sort of thread of, of,
3: Needing and wanting and desiring to belong and be part of something. And I'm curious, tying your personal story and your personal experiences to the work that you're doing with work bigger and the fact that you're a high achiever and you had your, you know, the way that you came into the US and how you've grown and then the folks that you're supporting. Do you find that that is maybe a thread there that these high achievers are so because they are looking? to
1: belong or get that gold star or get that A? It's a big thread. I'll share this story that I've been sharing quite a bit in our community. I went back to Albania. So after we went back in 2012, I went back seven years later in 2019, right before the pandemic hit with my entire family. And it was one of the best trips we've ever taken. And I'm sitting at the beach with my mom and we're talking about Albania and the culture and the people. And just the impact that communism had on the people, right? And their their struggles with work and their struggles to live. You know, my parents did not have... I grew up with my parents having a lot of big desires and goals. Like my dad has always surrounded himself in, with books and learning. And it's like... I think he wanted that even more so because that opportunity was taken away from him. He wasn't allowed to finish school. Neither was my mom. So I'm sitting there at the beach and she, she says this thing to me and she's like, to work hard is to love life. And I was like, what? Like, oh my God, what do you mean? Like say more. And, And she said to work hard is to love life. And she didn't mean it from this, the way that even myself, right, had first approached work, which is like, let me climb the corporate ladder. Let me achieve all the things. Let me succeed to get that perfection and to get that love, right? Whatever it is that's underneath uh, perfectionism. She was talking about it from a place of discipline, like really doing the thing that is maybe feels hard in the short term, but really serves you in the long term right it allows you to create the life that you want for yourself right for your family so again for my parents reaching their full potential that that wasn't in the cards for them like they they couldn't they were focused on you know let me meet my family's basic needs let me get us out of albania to a place where my kids actually are able to eat and have opportunity and can get an education but that to me the way my mom has spoken about it, right? to work hardest to love life from a place of discipline, doing the challenging thing in the short term so that you can you know create the life that you want to me, that's actually really healthy. It's a beautiful thing. It's about taking control of what you can, right and really prioritizing yourself and your well-being. it's it's very different from I think the culture that, that I've grown up with here, which is, let me, let me get that paycheck. Let me burn whatever it takes, right? Like, let me burn out. Um, And that, like that philosophy really informs work bigger and the culture that we have. Something one of my teachers said to me, we were talking, we're having this discussion. She said, this is like kind of like a, a mantra or whatever you want to call it that I've been trying to adopt as I, you know, break away too, from these like deeper beliefs that I've had around work and that pressure that we have, right. Whether we're like refugees, immigrants, like we want to do it as like, a thing. like you did all this for me. So I want to do this for you in return. And she said this thing to me, like, that's, it's not yours. Like that is, you can let that go. You don't have to carry that. Like their, their choices are not yours. So it's a way to help separate from that pressure that we feel to show up a certain way for our families and, you know, for our ancestors. And I wanted to share that because what you were speaking to like really hit on that. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's challenging for sure.
3: Dr. Hong Depp is a board-certified psychologist specializing in global mental health. She shared her own experiences as a Vietnamese Chinese American in a time of increasing anti-AAPI violence, as well as how it impacts us psychologically.
6: I was reading the New York Times, I don't know if you all read it, about a woman who was beat 125 times, right? And like, that's just, like, yeah, that's baffling and you know, to me, and it just again, reminds me of that constant hypervigilance that I think I felt during, I mean, I always felt it, but especially during the last two years. And just to think of what that does to a person and, you know, their nervous system when you're just constantly living in that state of fear and awareness. I definitely stay abreast of the mood. And there are moments when I'm like, oh my gosh, they're so different. And then there's sometimes I'm like, wait, we're still battling so many of the same things of just having equal rights to be and like in the the whole idea of just even being safe, right? and in our own homes, our own bodies without somebody else trying to govern and t- dictating to young people or whoever of our yeah women, right, in terms of abortion laws, whatever, that of what to do. Again, it reminds me that oftentimes there are more. Differences within culture, rather than between culture. So I think it has been a lot of with my clients, a lot of reckoning to being like, okay, where did we learn this? Like, when did the poison get in us? When did we, and how is it manifesting in us? And that we all have it, and we all have certain beliefs of, you know, when I think about hustle culture, you know, now what is not good, right? Girl boss culture, you know, just all this stuff that at one time we all believe, we all kind of bought into this, and part so much of the work is unlearning. I think I realize I've been so ingrained to think of pleasure as such like a taboo, naughty, right thing, um, and that I can only get pleasure or rest after working really, really hard, right? I mean, sometimes I think getting a doctorate was like sort of my like. Get a, get a jail-free card for like any time I want a massage, right? I can be like, well, I worked really, really hard like to get my doctorate so that I could deserve a massage, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, which I know again it's part of the immigrant culture, the hustle culture, scarcity mentality, yada, yada, right? So it's really annoying sometimes and you actually know like how your brain is functioning, but it still go, wants to go down that like neural path, right? And so pleasure activism is just basically using pleasure, using rest, using, doing what makes you feel good on an individual level as a way of saying F you to like the man, basically, right? For, and in the most simplest of ways, my most non-academic way is just saying, yeah, here's my way to show. And the the resistance, right? Of Is that to stand up for myself and what I need and to listen to my body is a way of resisting sort of the the general trend, right? I almost kind of like liken it to, you know, when you get off the metro and in DC in the, in the morning and everyone, you know, is in their dark suit heading in the same direction. And you're like the one person in a bright outfit, like trying to walk the other way. Right. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're going against the grain. What everyone is saying that this is how, you know, to be. And that it is for myself, when I try to engage in or work with my clients, it feels shocking. It feels kind of like, Ooh, I'm doing something bad, right? But I think the more that I do that and the more that I'm listening to my body to be like, I need to just take a nap right now, or I really just need to read a fun book. I don't need to read a, you know, one of my other nonfiction, you know, anti racist book or whatever that, you know, it is. It's this, you know, I read plenty of those, right? And so, so I think part of this is like, I just need to read, you know, something fun. And so it's it's just a way of, I think, standing up for our rights as humans of just like to be here and to experience what the world has to offer, right? Of like laying on the grass on a nice sunny
7: day. Really easy to fall in that trap of feeling guilty. When we're with our children, we feel guilty that we're not doing more for our clients or for the work that we're doing. And then when we're at work, we feel guilty that we're not being present enough for our children. It is an absolute lie to say that we can have it all. You can have it all, but not at the, all at the same time. You can't be everything to everybody all the time. And I think we need to get off our own backs and start recognizing that that is okay, and not feeling guilty about it or guilt, you know, shaming other women that are on their own journeys. For me, though, prior to the pandemic, it was estimated to take 100 years for us to close the gender gap. That, to me, was simply unacceptable. But we're now looking at about 135.6 years. We're going backwards on these issues. And as a mother of daughters, that is just a situation that I simply cannot accept for my own children or for any young girls out there. That was Naomi
3: Seddon, author of Milk and Margaritas. While many of these DEI initiatives are starting up in the US, our business world and economy is more global than ever. And there are challenges when working on an international team. Here's SGO's Dr. Victoria Verleza.
8: DEI initiatives being approached from an international or global perspective is really important, especially as we see folks working globally for different companies or maybe moving within companies or we're seeing companies and organizations going more global. I think about like Google, Snapchat, all of these very large organizations. DEI does not look the same in every single organization, in every single company. So when organizations are approaching their DEI initiatives, it's really important, especially if they have a global or international constituency, to be mindful of the fact that Anti-blackness, for example, does not show up the same way in the UK as it does here in the US. And how can they be mindful of that? How can they be intentional about their DEI efforts and meeting the needs of all of their constituents? How they can think about, for example, the US is like one of the only places that collect demographic information. That is something that most international or global companies do not and cannot collect because of atrocities that have happened in their own country. So how are we thinking about that? How can we be mindful of that? It goes back to, even if it doesn't affect you, thinking about it. So how can we be mindful about bringing to the forefront some of these social justice concepts such as racism, sexism, religious oppression, etc. in a mindful and intentional way. So organizations, especially that have global international reach and employees, they really need to know their people. They need to know how These concepts interact with the surrounding community because just because you have an office, for example, in India does not mean that the person working in that office is from India. They could be from the UK and working in India. So how are we being mindful about how these concepts show up in different contexts and just said a lot of words. How can we be mindful about how these concepts show up in different contexts? That's really important for organizations to do, especially at a global level, because we don't know how it's going to affect the individual and therefore how the system will affect the individual or how the individual will affect the system. So a way that I would suggest folks think about how to be intentional as they approach DEI within an international organization is to really understand like the local context, the global context, and then really encourage individual self-work, but also think about the systems that you have in place that are supporting folks. For example, employee resource groups. Can we have ERGs that are supporting folks' different identities that they self-select into, but you as an organization have already bought into having this ERG, for example? And like you're telling folks you have it, let them self-select in and let them have that support and that resource and have some uh, financial support from the organization to maybe program or have that that support network. I think that's just one way we could go into many, many others, but that's a, a great start for folks to really think about how they're supporting folks at the individual level within the system.
3: Here's Erin Leroy. program manager
9: for New Balance. It's important to remember here that the, the history of the footwear industry has been rife with change, especially in the U.S. So, you know, starting in the 80s, the domestic supply chain, especially for athletic footwear, was just devastated when manufacturing moved almost entirely overseas. In fact, New Balance, I think, again, is the only company that maintained U.S. manufacturing and still maintains it to this day. But, you know, so as an industry, we're used to seismic shifts in how we how we do business, right? We have some experience there. That said, the changes in the last 10 to 15 years in particular, they've been pretty big. A few that have stood out to me are, are globalization, right? A continued increase in globalization means that current events around the world have both direct and indirect effect, not just on consumers, but also on associates. It's their neighborhood, their lives. We are a global company and our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts started in North America. Again, largely, they were accelerated largely because of need. DEI is somewhat of a North American concept. We are not the first company to try to do something globally, and we're not going to pretend to be either. So there are plenty of other companies that have... have sort of led the way there and and some best practices are starting to emerge without speaking specifically about what New Balance will be doing um, or is doing. Generally, some things that that we have uh, seen talked about a lot recently is having a global framework, something that's a set of approaches that can be used by each region in which you do business to then drill down into their own regional specific plan. Most corporations want consistency across their brand and a you know a consistent associate experience. And that said, there is definitely locality that matters. So the, the values, the laws, those experiences are going to be very different depending on where in the world you are. And so a plan such as that where you have a, a large... Global framework, again, it's sort of a set of values that you would ladder up to from the region, allows the regions to identify their areas of need and create plans that are going to have a positive impact on those needs. Next, I spoke
3: with Elba Lazardi, site director at BASF, a global chemicals company headquartered in Germany with offices all over the world. And I'm really curious if you've noticed any geographical or global differences, because while there's obviously a lot of similarities between England, UK, and and the US, there's probably also some cultural differences that might be popping up too.
5: Yeah, I will say, so for example, in my previous organization, our headquarters were in the UK. um, So I spent a lot of time there and I actually felt like they were quite similar, right? That we found that it was easy to do those ERGs between US, UK. Today, on my current company, our headquarters are in Germany, and I get a lot of questions about tell me more about diversity inclusion. Tell me what that means. Tell me why that's important in the U.S. Because a lot of our initiatives are U.S.-based, and so there is still, and I haven't been to our headquarters yet because of COVID and everything, so I really don't know even physically what it will look like in terms of people and diversity. I do know that we move people all over the organization. So there's probably gonna be a lot of expats there. But to me, that the feedback I get or the questions I get make it very clear that diversity, equity, inclusion may not be a topic very well understood, at least in Germany, or at least, you know, in the population that I've interacted with, because they do ask, well, what does that mean? Like, when you say you're working on, you know, inclusion for this, like, what are you talking about? Right? And I'm like, that's such a huge question, right? Because it could be as simple as the ERDs or it could be a, well, a mother's room or, you know, we want gender neutral bathrooms or whatever, right? You can take that question and like, Ooh, you know, it just blows up. And so that's hard, right? Because, and I know this was a challenge that we had in my previous company because when we talked, used to talk about diversity, inclusion, and even trying to understand our diversity. You know, diversity in the U.S. is very specific a lot of times around the EEO categories, right? Of This is how we rank things. But once you start going into, well, what do we do in Mexico? What do we do in India? What do we do in South Africa? You know, how do you actually get a demographic makeup of your entire company when... What's a maybe considered a um, underrepresented group in the U.S. is not the same as an underrepresented group in another part of the world. So I know that was a challenge that early on we were we were working on. I know for us here at BASF, we're really kind of focusing again on that U.S. base of what does our diversity look like. And there are some, I would say, offshoots of our ERGs in other parts of the world. But our ERGs really are U.S. based and there's a lot of focus around the U.S. right now. I think it's so interesting,
3: too, because, you know, you touched on this with your last answer, but, you know, thinking about like language differences, like, you know, when we talk about things like pronouns, for example, sometimes that doesn't even apply to someone's native language for how you're talking about identity and people and, you know, things or whatever, or, you know, like you mentioned, what's underrepresented or the way that things are set up here in the U.S. in very very many cases are totally different in other parts of the world. But then the conversation is still important because we see that, you know, for example, like anti-blackness is something that, we see globally it's not just a, an american thing right i'm thinking about the news that came out when we first heard of the russian invasion of ukraine and how black and brown people were getting turned away at borders and you know and that's something that i've heard people say to me well these problems don't exist in my country. And it's like, well, they do, but they're different.
5: (laughs) So when you hear even our ERG name may not be appropriate of African-American employee group for that population in a global organization where there are people in the U.S., right? Who are not African-American. They're actually just African, right? And so a weird Conversation a lot of times, and I don't even know anymore what to say when I'm talking to people. You know, because I think you know Felicia as well. Some people prefer black, some people prefer African American, some people prefer people of color. And even in the DNI space, I think we're constantly learning and trying to understand what the right terminology is. And I think that the big thing that I always you know repeat to people is that we got to have that grace to be able to ask questions and be able to learn when somebody says, "I don't like it that way. I prefer you say this," and just take it as it is. Right? Don't take it as an offense because we have to keep learning, and that's the one thing I also enjoy about the whole space is that it is constantly growing and changing and there's new things to learn and to understand, right? And that as long as we're open to that, both sides, right? Me as a learner and you as part of that community, whichever it is that might be asking for different terminology, that we're all going to continue to grow. That's the key.
3: Finally, here's Dr.
2: Erica Powell again to help us find the rhythm of pushing forward. Folks are tired. We are two years in or two years after the murder of George Floyd, and folks are at a point where they're like, well, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we are so far from there. Even after the murder of George Floyd, we are still seeing this level of brutality and violence. What's going on? So that is a challenge That I see is that we're taking this stuff, but we're not taking it to heart and we're not taking it into our hands and our feet to choose differently. The other challenge that I see is you can only move at the rate of people's change and desire to change. So we, we can't move as quickly or as deeply as folks actually want to go. And that can be very frustrating because I think DEI practitioners are visionaries. We see what the world could be like. We see a a bigger vision and our folks sometimes come to us at a kindergarten level or they come to us at a pre-K level and we're expecting them to do college level stuff that's compounded by the like well come on you you know where have you been the past fill in the blank i think we have to hold that urgency of yes i know where you are and this is where you need to move and we need you to move more quickly we can get a nice rhythm that gets them to move the pace a little bit but again the key there is people will only move as quickly as they are willing to change. The facilitator just holds the beat. So if the facilitator's got the tambourine going, the people going to tambourine. <laughs> they will do their best at tambourining. <laughs> Where I hope to see us go, I hope to see us really see this as a transformation. This is an opportunity to transform how we come together in workplaces, in communities. And that has to be what keeps us in the conversation in my world. My biggest high is when folks get it. I remember one time I was doing an anti-racism class and um, participants stayed after because I always have my little after parties. We had the the class and then we had the after party and the individual um, was really in tears. It was a white male. And he said, after looking at these hallmarks and these characteristics of white supremacy, he realized how ingrained they were in how he did things. And he was starting to realize the cost of like, oh, when I do this, this is how it pushes people away from me. This is what it keeps me from creating. And that was such a beautiful moment to see that, right? And it's those highs that have to motivate us. And we have to believe that a new a new world is possible. Change is possible. So we can transform. It may not be easy, but we can do it. And however long I live on planet Earth, I want to be part of that, so... Count me in. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. Please
3: don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, this work. Make sure to tune in next week. If you're looking to further your own knowledge and gain support alongside other incredible people, join our free community. You'll get a welcoming built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and more. Check it out at shegeeksout.com community. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Vienna DiGiacomo, hosted by Felicia Jadzak, me, and Rachel Murray. The guests featured in this episode were Dr. Erica Powell, Gray Elam, Thelma McCaffrey, Hong Depp, Naomi Seddon, Erin Leroyd, and Elba Lazardi. Our facilitators were Fatima Denke, Rachel Sadler, and Dr. Victoria Verleza.